0: It's just us today, huh? Where's everybody else at? I'll take it. It's all right.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Black Hills Information Security, talking about news, or as we like to say, it's now the official post- wild west hacking fest wasteland because i am literally just joined by ralph and ryan not that that's a bad thing not that that's a bad thing like literally everyone else is just like hungover from the con last week and they're like there's no news happening this week at all so just kind of wiped out i guess but you know i'm sure next week we'll be back up to our full numbers we also have some other co-hosts that are having internet issues it's just the week after a con, it's maybe that some, people some people took vacation. Some people take vacation, slackers, yeah. but uh, losers. But yeah, losers. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, I, I think we do have some good stories. Uh, Ralph, do you want to start us out with the first story that you want to talk about? I mean, considering half of them are Apple.
0: Oh <laughs> my God! Yeah. So I mean, we can we can shoot off the uh, the Apple um, Apple funsies. So. The first one we got here is uh, the zero days, right? So three zero-day iOS vulnerabilities. And it's really – so let's just uh, describe what this is. Really, this is a critique of Apple's uh, disclosure program and Mm -hmm. Apple's kind of like lack of wanting to be either part of it, pay out researchers, so on and so forth, um, or just not communicate very well. And um, I guess there was a a couple zero days in the – uh, it's called game zero day, and disclosed a bunch of information, including Apple ID, full name associated with it, authentication tokens, a bunch of fun stuff. But I guess a security researcher reached out to Apple multiple times and kind of got nothing back.
2: Well,
1: and, he, also um, he also they weren't also happy with how much they got paid for a vulnerability. There was that's one vulnerability. Also true. They, they said this would have been like a fifty thousand dollar vulnerability, and instead I got five thousand dollars. So here's a whole bunch more, right?
0: I mean, like, if if there's any theme right now, it it, it seems like Apple is not caring as much, right? I, I don't know. Um, in in addition, they're just not paying out as much. I don't know. Maybe they're just taking a break from security this year. They're just like, you know what, security research, you guys are bugging well, us, right? I don't know, so I feel,
1: man. So I think that that's part of it. But I, I think that you know, put forwarding, a, let's say, a contrarian view, right? So for some of the companies that we've done work with, I've gotten access and seen their vulnerability disclosure database um, and their bug bounty program and everything. And they get thousands of people submitting all kinds of stuff like a week. So they have a lot that they're actually going through. And I hate to say, well, it's really hard. So they're not getting to it in time. Um, But I think that that's part of it, right? I think that if you're sitting there all day and you're wading through hundreds of these things, and just going through and trying to trying to understand them, reproduce them, and looking at a lot of bug bounty submissions, their, their quality goes from anywhere. It's like red teamer, amazing quality all the way down to like garbage level quality. It becomes this, this kind of you know, quack hack and, uh, and like a charlatan type thing, right? So or sorry, quack, hack and genius. So if you're looking at uh, this person that seems really smart, it is really hard to tell if they're a quack, if they're a hack, or if they're a genius. A quack (laughs) is somebody who's just like a crazy person who maybe has some good understanding of technology. A genius is somebody who knows exactly what they're doing. And then a hack is someone who knows enough buzzwords to make themselves sound smart. It is very, very difficult to differentiate between those three If you're coming into this and when you're dealing with bug bounty programs from people from Malaysia, from India, from Russia, from, you know, backwoods, United States, it's really hard to start sorting through this and figuring out what's real and what's not. And then there's also a flood of new people that found out they can make a living in Africa or (laughs) India doing bug bounties. So what I think is you're seeing the you're seeing not just Apple has something that they have to work on, which they absolutely do what I think you're seeing is you're starting to see the seams starting to show on the entire bug bounty culture, especially as it applies to large vendors like Apple. So, yes, Apple absolutely should put more money into this. Apple absolutely should hire more people to validate these things, but at the same time have a little bit of, you know, a little bit of respect of the, the sheer magnitude of the problems that they're actually dealing with to try to do this
0: Yeah, I I think I think you're right with all of that. And I think we're seeing kind of the the blood spilling on the street kind of scenario, as opposed to just the conversations in like, you know, private. And that is really, you know, what these articles are. Right. I mean, Apple's a two point four trillion dollar company. Right. So I I don't Mm -hmm. think it's about the money, but yeah, we are seeing a lack of attention there and yes just people getting tired and tired of the system and, and how it was set up and and not getting um you know either getting paid or more importantly just getting recognized or whatever it is that they're looking for um and like you said tons of people submitting so yeah and and that's really what these articles about um i think there was another one with the uh, i do think it's always funny it's the uh, it's the yeah. annual uh lock screen bypass uh, that was every, another one of the year, ones up there every year every year true. yeah yeah and
1: it's like oh before i even started reading that i'm like they used surrey they had to use surrey yeah. like, there it is they use surrey uh, so.
0: yeah that that one comes up every year as soon as the new ios comes out it's kind of like hey who can get the uh first lock screen bypass right uh maybe well, it's like a uh rite of passage for um uh, what do you call it? Vulnerability research in iOS. What I do think is the most fun, though. Most people that I've seen in the past that have reported it have nothing to do with security. They just play with their phone endlessly until it does something it's not mo- intended to do. Yeah, you're gonna have disclosures um,
1: is... from ten year olds, you know? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, but but it, it, you know, you know, somewhere in a basement in, in Cupertino, one infinite loop at Cupertino. There's like a whole <laughs> bunch of interns. You're like, all right, intern. <laughs> I want you all to find all the bypass <laughs> vulnerabilities that you can, or you're not. You're gonna get whipped, and this <laughs> vulnerability comes out. The guy comes down with the whip, and all the interns yeah. like, "Oh God, not
3: again. <laughs> so,
0: And they're like, they're like, and if you tell anyone about our whipping program, you're out. <laughs> you're
1: double whipped, and then you'll no longer work here. Um, the other thing I love about these vulnerabilities is like it's bad news for Apple, and I'm already having friends and family. They're like you're seeing all these vulnerabilities from Apple. I wish that they would get their you know their poop together and be secure <laughs> like Android. And it's oh, like there were Android vulnerabilities. Dude. Everyone's like, oh, that's why I run Apple. So
0: so at uh um at, what is it at the Wild West Hacking Fest? There was a whole talk about privacy and like what phone to use and so on and so mm-hmm. forth and stuff. Uh, great talk. And um you know it, it's not that simple. It's not. And, and in fact, the recommendations for like an actually like. Private phone, dude. No, like d- get ready, get your yeah. get your you know get your weekend cleared off. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a, <laughs> Go back like, to this
1: a is not. Phone. It, yeah, it's
4: I like, mean, like
1: it's. Like, it's uh, Touch yeah. came out with a new build last week, and I'm getting ready to load it <laughs> on my Pine phone. You know, next time we drive to Bozeman, Montana, and I have like eight hours in the car, I'm gonna be yeah. sitting there and I'm gonna be loading that new Mbutu Touch <laughs> on it. I'm I'm excited. All you have to do Uh, is have everyone do that and we're
0: good. Yeah. No. Yeah. If we could just have everyone do that, we'd be perfect. And all the phone problems. I mean, so yes, it's, it is everyone. It's a big thing, right? We really have two players in the field and you know, which side you pick, you know, make it your personal preference. But you know, if you're expecting that one is superior, uh, in privacy, or more specifically in security, then you're going to be well, severely disappointed, right?
1: And to pull this back to like what's actionable for our listeners, right? Because we're kind of poking yep. fun at bug bounty programs in Apple and Android. Yeah. And if somebody's listening to the show looking for direction and free consulting, <laughs> what the hell's wrong with you? What were you thinking? Uh, wrong show, honestly. <laughs> The thing that at an enterprise level that you need to look at is you need to store up these news stories, regardless if it's Android or Apple, and you need to talk to management and say, what is our rapid patch deployment strategy in our organization? What is our strategy for dealing with these things as, as they come out? Because many vendors will, will actually have that capability, but a lot of organizations don't test it. They don't vet it. And we've actually worked with a handful of different companies that have tried to implement these technologies for pushing out patches or like deprovisioning and like cutting off and wiping devices. And a lot of the products that have those features, they don't work. So what I'm telling you is you need to be testing those capabilities in (laughs) your environment if you have an MDM solution setup. So trying to make something useful out of this, I guess.
4: Yeah. Yeah. I know see- one thing I see with like uh iPads when they are employed in like industrial facilities and stuff, like they'll buy the iPads that only have the Wi-Fi and then they'll put like Jamf on them or something like that. And they'll be like well, we could just factory wipe them. Yeah. <laughs> but that only works if you're connected <laughs> to the internet. Only, <laughs> so only unless works. you put cellular in there, that's not gonna work. And even if you do put cellular in there, it may or may not work.
1: Well, we had a lot of those in the various, um, so we, okay. So whenever I got out of working in skips every day, there was a, um, there was this huge push against any mobile devices. Right. And then in a couple of the national labs, some high up muckety mucks were like, well, I want an iPad that is secure and it doesn't have cell, but it can have wireless. And we're like, You work in a skiff, like wireless. That you know that, right? Like, and they're like, "Well, this is important to me because I really like it for taking notes." So then they turned on wireless, and the point is, like (laughs) just like you said, Noah, is it becomes this slippery slope where, like, before too long, something that's secure is now completely wide open, wild, wild west. People are using it to exfil things over Bluetooth. It's just, Mm. it's just really, really tough to keep that stuff locked down with executives.
0: So I, I have a speaking of that, I have a buddy who works over at uh, AWS, and uh, he has been he's, he does a lot of the wireless stuff very specifically. Anyways, um, so they if you don't know this, you can actually rent like uh, this goes back to Apple, too. You can rent like Macs, like iMacs in the in the cloud right um and what that really means is like there's just a big data center with a bunch of racks where they're just shoving max just endless ones right and you know he went in there to 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 be like hey what's the security risk here he's like you got to pull all these wireless cards out of there so it's just like just chucking all of these wireless cards out of this it's just unbelievable dude just like at the scale that they're dealing with with that kind of uh you know hardware and uh pulling out wireless for security it's it's wild dude
1: I, I got another story on a on, on whole bunch of Apple computers in a, hey, Jeff joins. So he's not just on text. Wow. Um, wow. Hey, Jeff you Jeff don't Jeff, say
4: anything um, when I show up, John, but Jeff joins and he gets a, just a whole applause. I don't see, I see. Jeff
1: all that much. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
4: it's, it's,
0: it's, it's, nothing it's nothing personal. <laughs> so sure,
1: sure. One of my hey, favorite like stories of Apple computers and racks is from Randy Marchaney out at Virginia Tech. And he tells this story where... All of a sudden, a whole bunch of people at Virginia Tech are working on supercomputing problems and clustering issues. And they come up with a way that they can cluster a whole bunch of Apple computers together. Back, you know, when Apple was doing really, really good hardware for their desktop systems. And uh, the Apple sales rep shows up to Virginia Tech and Randy Marchani and a couple of other people get in the room. And they're like, we need to buy like, you know, like X thousands of like these desktops, these Apple desktops and we need them in a couple of weeks. Can you make that
2: happen?
1: Because they wanted to feel the computer system to compete with like the supercomputing competition um, for like the world's most powerful supercomputer. So you can just see this, this, this Apple sales rep, who's just like dollar signs, just rolling in their eyes, right? So Apple showed up with a whole bunch of semi trucks filled with these computers and offloaded them. And I think they came in like third in the supercomputing uh, competition. This was a number of years ago, but you know, anytime anyone's talking about, you know, racks full of Apple computers, I just think of that just absolute nightmarish computer supercluster of Apple John, computers. Yeah, my,
3: uh, my life started off in, uh, in Apple land, in academia, running uh, X-Grid on a bunch of x Um <laughs> So I, I very much am familiar with those days. That was, a, that was an interesting part of uh, Apple um, at the time, really heavily in academia. Back, back I, wonder when you felt the,
2: I wonder what the exchange rate is between dump trucks of cash and semi-trucks full of Apple computers.
1: I think it's a very tight <laughs> correlation between those two things. It's just a line that goes up at a 45-degree angle. So, <laughs> but you know, when we talk about, like, X-Grid and Apple computers and these supercomputing uh, clusters, I, I always um, – I always wonder, like, if today with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, which we got, to, we can do this as a transition to another story about China. If uh, you know, whenever they're standing up these supercomputing con- uh, super clusters in like Sandia and Los Alamos, they're like, "Well, how are we going to test it to make sure it's working the way that we want it to?" It's like, <laughs> you mine. Here, like you "Could mine uh, you mind some Bitcoin?" You know, just throwing that out there. Here, I'll, I'll volunteer my wallet as tribute for this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's a burn-in software. It's actually the official uh, burn-in for, um, you know, large computing um, platforms, be. right? Supercomputers. Yeah. Yep. yep. So,
1: that, so that, brings <laughs> us to, um, that brings us to our cryptocurrency story of the week, which we have themes, right? Cryptocurrency, and then we got ransomware. So China has officially done it, guys. They've declared that all cryptocurrency transactions are now illegal. It's done. Problem solved. It's now done. It, it, it's um, done.
0: This is... By the way, for like the seventh time that they've actually yes. said this. So, yes. um, but,
1: yeah. But they're serious so, this time.
0: This this article is like, or this whole announcing is like the FUD of FUD, right? Because then the price goes down, people buy, and it comes back up because they realize that it didn't matter that China had already said they were going to do this for the seventh time. You know, but every time China bans something, it becomes the thing you want, right? So just pick it but out. It-
1: This gets into one of our continuing themes that we've talked about with like cryptocurrency, where nation states are trying to shut down like Suex, which uh, we we tried to stop that. You know, it's ran out of Czechoslovakia and ran by Russians, and China's doing it. I'm convinced that what China is doing is they're manufacturing little mini crashes so that the people that are running China can buy on the dip and then they can come up. (laughs) Um, but the, the, the reason why I think that this is interesting is China is basically saying this is used for illegal activity. It is now an illegal activity, but, and I've, I've heard this argument from a number of people when it comes to like cryptocurrency, they're like, well, cryptocurrency is used by criminals. Uh, Kevin Mandia has said that if you're buying into cryptocurrency you're supporting criminals and you can say the same thing about cash. And if you look at, you know, transactions of actual dollars and you look at the FinCEN files uh, from like BuzzFeeds, which they want to pull a surprise for, like the banking system is literally laundering trillions of dollars in dirty money. And it has nothing to do with cryptocurrency whatsoever. So there's a lot of times I wonder, are we actually trying to solve a problem? Or you know, are we just picking on a technology?
0: You know, you know what's funny about that too, and I'll, I'll I'll follow that up and say that multiple major banks have gotten publicly caught doing what you're saying, like helping launder money for criminal enterprises. They were slapped, opening. yeah, slapped with a fine. Okay, go on their way, go on your way, keep doing what you're doing. Okay,
1: yeah, don't do you, that again. You got again. caught.
0: Don't do that oh, again. Or we might find you
1: yeah and well, but find that, all, that all
4: boils down to the fact that banks are useful to other people as well i mean it's like the same because we can say that we could the, the, the easy solution on ransomware here i'm going to just tell you this right now easy solution to stop all ransomware we just ban the entire internet like, just shut it down but the reason <laughs> oh, we don't wow. do that is because the internet is useful like yeah. uh, to the to the normal people not to the to the nerds and okay. enthusiasts like like uh crypto is
1: But crypto is not just for nerds and enthusiasts. If you go to a lot of countries in Africa, Southeast Asia, coins.ph for the Philippines, you know, there's now people in some of these countries that don't have stable financial institutions that are using cryptocurrency as their financial system. Okay, Um, I should should have actually
4: specified The banks and the internet are used by the people who make the rules. (laughs)
1: Oh, okay. Oh, cool. cool. Oh, Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think we're on violent agreement. And they don't use
4: crypto. And this is why, and this is why they say we should just ban crypto.
0: Well, yeah, yeah, it's a threat to their current system, right?
1: It's a complete threat to the system. And if you look at... Did we lose John's audio? I think he was.
4: He was really into it, too. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, he was, he was
4: into it. I, I think really he was funny. so into it, he pulled the plug on his mic, it almost looks like.
2: Attackers use X, therefore, we need to get rid of that thing. Uh, no yes. matter what it is, attackers use oxygen, yep. attackers use cash, attackers <laughs> use crypto, attackers use computers. Let's ban those. Uh, yeah. You gotta be careful as to what the claim actually is and does it correlate to the proposed solution and attackers use crypto therefore let's ban crypto there's probably some other reason there It uh, kind of comes back to uh the think of the children approach that gets a lot of laws uh at yeah. least proposed that that obviously brings a whole other can of worms into things but i try to tread oh, very oh. carefully when it comes to understanding the actual rationale behind a proposal
1: oh i yeah, can't I wait say... until kids are using crypto and people are like we need to ban crypto because of the kids.
2: <laughs> Think of the
4: children.
0: <laughs> no, they're going to say something like that. They're going to be like, they're using microtransactions in games, but now they're using crypto. It made it too much easy, too easy. Now we need to get rid of crypto. It's,
1: yeah. the, crypto. it's the crypto. Back in my day, when we bought drugs, we brought, bought it with cash. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> so, I, so okay. <laughs> Somebody was saying something. I uh. interrupted them with you know King of the Hill. Oh my um, gosh! Uh, but this ties I mean, into I, the I guess the, it
4: seems like what they're trying to accomplish is kind of more or less the the uh, semi universal ban that we have on like torrents. Now, yeah. I mean, torrents got used by a lot of bad people, and it wasn't used by enough good people. So, therefore, even though it wasn't a bad technology, now your ISP can basically send you a letter anytime you use one.
1: But let's also back up. Let's that didn't solve the problem, though, right? You know, so, what right. ultimately solved the problem was Netflix and the ability to buy media very quickly, efficiently, and easily, and legally online, right? Right. Um, so if you're like, well, I can buy this game for 250 or I can try to pirate it, I'm just going to buy the game for 250 right? Or if I'm trying <laughs> to watch a movie, I can go to Amazon and, like, push play. It just makes it very, very, very easy. Oh, yeah. Um, do. So, that just I seems think like kind of what they're
4: trying to do with crypto in, in that case, is they're trying to push it to kind of that same fringe area.
3: But
1: Yeah, well, and I but I don't think that's going to work as well in this situation. Oh, no. Right? I don't think so. I don't think so well, at all.
3: It, you know, the, the amount of money that China spends on, on the power of consumption alone, I mean, at 67%, do you think that might have an influence on, on maybe the why? Uh, just how much cash they're throwing at the problem? Well, and they're probably subsidizing it, too. And they're like, hey, there goes all the power.
1: Um,
3: (laughs) Yeah, they have cheap, very dirty
2: power available uh, and kind of first dibs on a bunch of GPUs. There's a bunch of miners that are uh, buying pre-built laptops and such, buying them at retail, and it's still better than trying to go on the scalpers market for GPUs. So I I don't think they're going to change the economics of this. So it turns out when you ban something, when you make it illegal, it doesn't magically all stop. Um, I, I doubt this is going to make a huge difference in how much crypto is mined inside of China.
1: Yeah, I, I doubt it. Well, but a lot of those miners are actually in power stations and they're sanctioned by the people that run those specific areas of China, right? So as long as the people in power are making money, they're cool with it. And wait, that's just like everywhere. All right. So yeah. I want to move on. <laughs> I, want to, I, want to, I want to talk a little bit about the FBI and ransomware, and I'd love to get your, your take on this. Um, But for three weeks, the FBI actually sat on a key that would have decrypted uh, ransomware in about 1,500 networks. And, you know, I I think that this is is one of those things you can go either way. There's people that are like, they absolutely should have released that immediately. And then there's the other side. It's like, you know, means and methods. You know, if you know, if you release this information, then the people that you you get it. Yeah. How did you get it? And it gets them to start changing their operations and their TTPs, and you really like staying inside of that, you know, that TTP envelope of your adversary. Mm. So I, I don't know, I could go either way on this one. What, what do you guys take on this one? Should the FBI release this stuff immediately? Or is it better for the interest of everyone for them to sit on?
0: It I, I mean, this goes um, right towards just being able to attribute uh, this is this is like pretty much tradecraft 101 for uh, however your Intel co- where your Intel's coming from so and that's really what they were protecting, right uh, whether it's SIGINT, human, uh, however they got it, they don't want to disclose it and that's why they were sitting on it not because they didn't want to help these people out so um, and this happens all the time. All the time. A lot of information the government knows or has or intel that they received it never becomes like shared or public, but they can use that to make other actions and decisions, but they don't necessarily share that information because they're going to share how they got it. So not right. uncommon.
2: Matt Toussaint did a great rant on this not too long ago. Of oh. In the private sector, we are extremely quick to burn uh, our intelligence sources, like kind of by instinct, whereas in a more military world, it is very common to... Actually, think very carefully about what you were revealing <laughs> to attackers. When you reveal, yes, the uh, methods uh, that you gained that information, just the fact that you reveal in the timing uh, tells them, tells the attackers uh, a good, a very strong hint as to how you got it. Uh, so you can't just have a key come out of nowhere. You are going to reveal something to attackers. Yeah.
1: yeah. The other thing is, even if they did reveal the key, the the FBI, I think, is completely. It's impossible for them in any government agency just to, like, quietly post the key somewhere or give the key to somebody else. You know, yeah. they've got to have a freaking press conference. They've got to yeah. have a PowerPoint presentation. They've got to give it an operation name. Like, you know, you know, you know <laughs> here we are. We're going to be telling you the inside workings of Operation Screeching Condor, which uh, I was the lead agent on Operation Screeching Condor. Screeching. It just can't be like, you know, it can't be like, hey, Mandy, here's the key in an envelope, just make it happen, it which we will, right? Like, they can't do that. That's just not how they work as an agency. Well, that,
4: that doesn't renew budgets at the end of the year. Yeah, so. it doesn't renew yeah. budgets. Uh, so, I, I, I mean,
0: what what, what's their job though right isn't it to you know find out who did this and and i think that's really kind of is it their job to like just go around finding decryption keys for attacks i think it's their job yeah. uh, i mean this is just my yeah. opinion and you know to find out who did it and that process sometimes is like long and it isn't smooth and, and requires you to put a lot of pieces together it also requires for someone to make mistakes and for that to happen you you have to kind of you know keep quiet about it also yeah no, well and I, if I it agree. comes to
4: like short term games versus like long term destruction. I mean, yeah. if they thought that by keeping that information private that they had that they'd compromise those networks, um, could lead to shutdown or something like that. I mean, it, it really boils down to the fact that they either release it now and they save a few people over here, or they try, if they think they can, to shut down the entire operation, which could save an unknown number of people over here. And, and yeah, that's, yeah. I think, what was going on. And well, I, I I think that's a good idea.
3: I think information sharing is is still very hard. I mean, uh, you, you know, John, you've got a great class uh, with with Introduction to MITRE, but even even with the whole CISA links that get posted frequently, there's a lot of people that don't understand how to ingest those TTPs and then take action to do something with it. So even mm-hmm. if they release information at a at a at a more structured cadence, will that really help? Well, that's also that's also assuming that the entire enterprise is set up to where the petabyte potentially petabytes of data depending on the size of the organization are even accessible to the analysts on a on an instantaneous basis. or if it's a an alert that's probably a false positive, not really worth the thirty to forty five minutes of digging into it when you've got all of these other alerts that are higher priority. <laughs>
1: See, and, I, and I think that that's a good point—is like that quality filtering whenever these things start coming in, right? And uh, this gets kind of on a different, ty- uh, like, kind of tangent, but I think it's important. You know, whenever we're talking about Intel, right? Whether you're talking about the FBI, or you're talking about a key and how you actually use that, or you're doing threat intelligence and you receive that data and what you actually do with it, I think that point is absolutely solid, and that's why I think it's important that we start getting into more adversarial emulation and, you know, basically. What can we emulate to make sure that our alerts are actually working the way that they're intended? But no, it's hard. Like, intelligence is hard. It doesn't matter where you're at. You know, you can spend years digging on something that will never come to fruition in the IC community. Um, And then you can completely miss something that was blatantly obvious and right there in front of your nose. So, no, it's tough. It's really tough. Always is.
0: It's also really expensive. I think we spend a lot of okay, money doing Act it. Two. Like a lot. Yeah,
4: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I think, okay, let's, let's have some fun with this. What are some ways they could have released this in such a way they would have had fun? Like, I'll give you some examples. Let's get from the PSYOPs. So you have this key, right? Let's say you were able to hack into a computer. You were able to get access to the key to decrypt all of these different things. There are some different ways that you can do that, right? Like you could, from that computer that you have access to, Just have that user account email it to you with an email that says, I really want to help the FBI and I'm really looking forward to actually working with the FBI in the future. You could release that. You could say that you received it from the leader of this particular group and he was talking about how he wants to cash out and leave everyone else in the group behind. And the point is with PSYOPs, if you can release it in such a way that creates this discontent within the criminal organization itself, you get these amazing and fun fireworks after you do that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, you got to make yeah.
0: a, a disgruntled employee type scenario, right? I was very upset with the group; they weren't compensating him right, and he released it, and that's that's how it got out there.
1: And like I'm not this... happy with the amount of money that they paid me, <laughs> and I, I expected this should have been a fifty thousand dollar ransomware yep. gig that I did. They only paid me in five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So here's mm-hmm. an unlock bypass for Apple's phones. No, it, so that's different types <laughs> of.
2: This very much makes me think of uh, the AACS key, that 09F9, right? And how many people wanted to publish that key in so many different ways. I'm thinking of, like, the poems and songs that people made so that there would be their own copyright of that version. You could do the flag. You you could
1: make shirts and sell them online, right? You know, there's so many other ways that you could have done this. Right, and I know people are talking about AAS and all that. But all right, so that's that's the ransomware uh, thing. I want to talk about the Nagios software bugs. Uh, so this is in the Hacker News, and I actually was a co-author in one of the worst technical books that was ever published. It was Nagios Enterprise Monitoring. I think I wrote two chapters in it, and it was bad. Like we had whole pages of the book that were all code for Nagios plugins. And there was no website where people could download it. So you'd have to literally sit there and type <laughs> the <URL> <laughs> <window>. <laughs> that was fun, right? Uh, um, were you trolling there's up a lot, of, <laughs> there's a lot of organizations that are still using Nagios? And if you can scroll down <laughs> to the bottom to the scores, um, keep going, keep going. These no, are no joke, right? Like these are... Like wow. Okay. Um so with this, like we have an eight point eight score, nine point eight? There's actually think,
4: three nine point eights, it looks like
1: three nine point eights. And just so you know, just it's bad. SQL SQLi like, ten bad. Like, you know, SQL injection yeah, is one I of I mean them.
0: that's like one oh one for web development, just finding SQL I, uh anyways.
4: Well, yeah, and then that, that 9.8 effectively means that, like, with just that attack, you can do something really terrible. Like, you don't need to string a series of attacks together. It's just that 9.8 can teach you something really terrible, and you have three of them in the list.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I hate CVSS scoring systems, but uh, on a scale of 1 to bad, <laughs> right, 10 being bad, it's bad. pretty yeah, clear. Yeah. And we told about the all the scoring, but as an attacker, as a pen tester, there's usually like two classifications of vulnerabilities you actually care about, things that get you a shell and things that don't. And four <laughs> of these are very clearly things that get you a shell, and therefore <laughs> things worth worrying about. Code is a back surface and so no-
0: Obviously in this, this disclosure, somebody got paid most likely to do uh, you know, a review of this software, right? Uh, no, this, I, is, I,
1: this is reviewed by Clarity. Claro yeah. team, um, mm-hmm. security, and they did wait and make sure that Nagios was patched before they released them. So they were paid to do this. So,
0: yeah, I, I just don't, I was just going to say, I just don't think this is like a, a vulnerability, like disclosure program. That's all I was trying to say. Right. Like, and no. I think <laughs> if you take any of these products, right. And you run them through the ringer, like this should be the result. Most of the time, you know, But not like this, like the fifth round should start getting better where you're like, oh, okay, we, we really didn't find as much. Right. But yeah, there's a lot in here.
1: So. Well, and Skylight, if you remember um, Skylight earlier this year, I can't remember when. Um, I remember it being cold, but they released a whole bunch of vulnerabilities in Nagios as well. Um, so I don't know if Nagios is actually hiring these firms uh, to do this, which maybe that's that's a good play. Maybe they're you know hiring <laughs> firms to look at their software and they're releasing these patches and these updates. I hope I, that's what's going on in this situation. I,
0: I agree with you, John, but I will say this, right? SolarWinds, much bigger, probably more paid, and they had just as bad as stuff in it. So I, I don't know, man. We're all screwed. It's I can't give you any good light. <laughs> I,
2: I think uh, if, you want to, if you want to take away from it, it's that there will always be some initial access mechanism. You're, never be one o day away from a breach. This is why we focus on post-exploit attacker actions and yeah. detective pipelines and not just let's prevent oh all the God. things and then never monitor ever again. Oh God,
1: we So l- earlier this year, we had a customer where we did an external and an internal and like all of the internal vulnerabilities, they had a whole bunch of highs and criticals. And they basically were like, well, none of these are highs and criticals. And we're like, wait, 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 what? Like you're using default passwords. You have things that are unpatched. You have those amazing server 2003 boxes that Ralph was talking about earlier in the show how is this not critical? They're like, well, we had to give you access to the inside of the environment. It's behind a firewall. So they're all lows. Like it's not how any of this works here. Like, at <laughs> all. Uh,
0: yeah. That happens all the time. Not necessarily the denying of the vulnerability severity level or whatever, yeah, but you'll get on. Uh, you'll, yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll get, you'll see a perimeter and it'll seem buttoned up and there's not really much there. You get access to the internal and it's like, just a shooting gallery, like the Wild West out there, right? It's just, you know, guns blazing. I'm like, you're one, one bad payload, one bad attack away from just total destruction, right? Um, so it really is something you have to consider. Just having good external security is not going to fix that internal problem. So
1: so speaking of internal problems, trying to get through this, because we got really, really wrapped around the axle in crypto. Um, <laughs> so this is one of those things I know Jeff is going to love. You know, Jeff, whenever we're, we're teaching, we like talking about real mode versus protected mode startup on Windows systems. And whenever it's oh, – let me explain the difference. So whenever an operating system starts in real mode, you can access any part of the memory of that operating system. Um, so if you go back to Windows 95, you could have a program that could hook into another program and change its memory contents. And with Windows XP, I believe SP2 – They actually implemented protected mode memory across the entire operating system. And uh, the reason why this matters today is you can actually install and create root kits that whenever the operating system starts, it goes through real mode memory for a brief period of time, and then it transitions into protected mode. And when that operating system runs in that real mode memory, where you can access all the different areas in memory, a bunch of boot kits have the ability to actually reach in and disable things like mandatory driver signing um, and things of that nature so that the malware can continue to load and can continue to run. So one of the things I think is really cool is we have this story, a new bug in Microsoft Windows could let hackers easily install a rootkit, which is funny because Microsoft already released the application compatibility toolkit. That's a whole nother story. We'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, This is actually a weakness in Microsoft Windows Platform Binary table, which, Jeff, I don't know about you, but I got kind of a little bit excited because I didn't even know what the hell that was.
2: Um, (laughs) A whole world. (laughs) Fantastic point of attack surface. Yep, It it
1: is. And specifically what this does is what this particular table does is it allows the boot firmware to provide Windows with a platform binary in the operating systems as far as what can execute. So what happens is it allows you to have your, your motherboard manufacturer point to sign binaries for that BIOS in or that firmware UEFI so it allows it to execute. So what happens is you can actually hijack this table so that your rootkit is actually running at a level of the same level as like a ROM for UEFI and allows you to run untrusted binaries. Um, to allow them to execute. So this is well, like serious.
2: I wasn't actually re- uh, pre-reading the links, and I was furiously Googling, because I'm like, I'm pretty sure there's a way in UEFI to have a binary that Windows executes, like that the OEMs can provide, and it turns out it is WPBT. Uh, I did yeah. just share in the private chat the drop WPBT uh, on, there we go, on GitHub. Uh, which is one way to remove those. You could also use it to audit inside your environment. But yeah, anytime there's a built-in non Windows persistence mechanism that go mm. ba- goes back and affects Windows, that's that's huge. Um, yeah. It means you don't have to have, like, custom BIOS that you flash. It means you use the, uh, the feature instead of using a bug or writing your own BIOS well, extension. And it iTunes. used
1: to be, you know, back before, like, bad BIOS, the idea was if you could actually completely overwrite the BIOS with your own malware. Um, and I can't remember who's the, the instructor out in Europe. Um, it's not – maybe it is Raul. But he basically was creating rootkits that would run inside the firmware of network cards. And I feel bad because I can't remember his name. It's a total brain fart. But this is interesting because, like you said, it's not like you're completely changing out the firmware. You're basically just hijacking parts of the firmware. And that's all that you need to do to allow it to get it to execute and run properly.
2: Was that uh, Dragos Rui, 2013 or so? I don't know.
1: Okay. Dragos was the one he was, he was talking about bad bias, where it was basically communicating over uh, the speakers and microphones for air gap networks. So that was his. This actually goes a little bit earlier. But even if you go back, uh, Litchfield, uh, David Litchfield's brother, um, actually had a paper that he released called Creating and Detecting PCI-Based Root Kits. So there's a long, like, really colorful. Oh, we can go back to Joanna Ratatska as well and some of her yeah. research. There's just this amazing background of just really rich rootkit stuff that's just so cool going all the way back to Hogland and Butler and uh, all of those different tools. So, so I don't know. How do, you, how do you go about dealing with something like that? Now, this is, this is what I wanted to open up to everybody. If you're a corporation, how the hell do you actually <laughs> go about at a systematic enterprise level dealing with rootkit detection and response?
3: Improving Uh, DevSecOps and getting things into a more uh, audible structure. (laughs) Like infrastructure is code for all things, devices included. I I was going
0: to say device baselining too, Um, you know, to try to uh, like you should know what is executing on your system at any time. But the problem is device baselining is is a nightmare, and especially at scale. There's just so many caveats there uh, as far as detection goes. I mean, so like if you did a device baseline on your system, you said these are the only software packages that are allowed on here. It's easy to find that something executed that's outside of that. But, you know, doing that at scale can be super complex and so, kind of a hurdle.
1: And this gets into some detection difficulties, right? Like a lot of these tools, basically, one of the things that people used to say is you could basically flash your firmware, flash your BIOS, and it would overwrite the bad one. Problem with that is a lot of these different rootkit technologies, they'll see the version that you're trying to flash, and they'll just update their version to match the version that you're trying to install. Um, Go back to some other rootkit techniques. Jamie Butler released one called Shadow Walker back in 2008, and it basically paged itself out of memory and waited for any memory reads to go by for memory forensics and then brought itself back. And it's funny because you talk to people and they're like, well, no one's ever detected these types of rootkits in the wild. And that doesn't sit well with me, right? Like, have we not detected these things in the wild because they're not heavily used? Or have we not detected these things in the wild because nation-state level attackers that are actually using them are, it's that advanced that it's very difficult to detect. Uh, CZ Adanki, I mispronounced that, I apologize. Talked about Windows 11 and Trusted Platform Module 2. And that gets into basically trying to trust the actual software that's running on your firmware on your computer system, like your processor, uh, memory management unit, things like that. But this particular attack is one of those types of things that has a very, very good possibility of bypassing that type of control uh, that's put down on it. So
2: don't, don't, don't get me wrong, TPM and trusted chain are great things, 100%. They're not a 100% panacea. And using the OEM way of launching a binary within Windows for OEM compatibility purposes, that's intended
4: behavior that's not going to be blocked by secure boot for example yeah then, so so is the actual like exploit code and persistence mechanism stored inside of like the windows bootloader or is it stored inside of the firmware on the chips
1: two different things okay. right tech- actually three one you're, you're talking about the exploit this is not talking about an exploit per se this is a right. persistence mechanism so you have to get on the box get administrative yeah. level rights and then it allows you to actually write this so it, it is in the firmware, so it, it is something that is going to be loaded every single time. Jeff, you were so, going to say so. something,
3: too.
2: Oh, uh, two things. One, uh, I shared a link to ChipSec, which is the closest thing I know of to a fairly reasonable way to audit your uh, essentially your UEFI, your BIOS, throughout the mm-hmm. organization's cross-platform support. I think it's from Intel, if I recall. Uh, but it's a pretty good resource. Uh, obviously, there's attack surface everywhere. Anywhere there's code, there's attack surface that includes persistence mechanisms. If you want to get started there, um, first, I mean, hardware Go. and software inventory is way, way, way above examining UEFI for persistence mechanisms. Uh, yeah. But there, there are ways to examine this in a defense point of view as well.
1: Well, and this gets into the rabbit hole, right? right. Like, you know, Jeff's talking about, you shouldn't be worrying about this. I yes. know that that sounds weird. There's so many other things that you should be worrying about, like, <laughs> policy, two-factor authentication, uh, yeah. you know, all of these standard motherhood and Apple pie things. And what sucks is there's always this curve where someone's learning computer security and they start to think it's like, well, we can get on top of this and we can detect these attacks and we can deal with these things. And then you start learning about, like, ring minus 13. And you're like, what the <laughs> hell? Is it turtles all the way down? And there's some guy with a beard that's like, yep, turtles all the way down. <laughs> 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 priority,
2: to to add really right something practical you know, about that, though, I, I, I would say you should develop the habit, the, uh, the skill as an InfoSec professional of every time your pointy-haired boss says, I'm worried about UEFI persistence, you say, Great point. I'm going to use that concern to increase actual security benefit. You know what? (laughs) We don't know which boxes we actually have throughout our environment. So we're going to work on UEFI persistent searching. But as a prerequisite to that, we need some really good hardware inventory out there. So uh, that's going to be incorporated into the project. It's a prerequisite. So obviously we got to start there. Like, always have this pivoting mechanism uh, built in for when someone brings up, here's a compliance concern, or here's something I saw on some headline. Yes, and we need to apply that going back to the basics.
1: So, Jeff's talking about EcoSec (laughs) gaslighting. We need to fix this. Great point. Absolutely. Solid point. But I think we got to get our arms around the problem first before we start jumping in and trying to solve it
0: uh that so, makes so, you management material
1: <laughs> if i may if i
4: may ask and i mean feel i feel i'm i'm relatively new i guess you can say so just feel free to laugh at me or tease me about it whatever but when i was researching boot hole and looking for ways to kind of prevent that from happening not necessarily be able to detect it but prevent it effectively couldn't you just set a bios administrator password and kind of lock yourself out of that even as an administrator i wasn't able to directly modify BIOS settings without the administrative passwords.
1: Uh, So understand that there's more than just the BIOS on your, on your CPU, right? Uh, Right. So whenever you're looking at the attack surface, your video card has its own like CPU and GPUs and its own firmware network card does too. There's a ton of different things that exist in your computer system that become really, really good places where you can actually inject your malware in that firmware, and then it makes it persistent across Reboot, and it makes it persistence against a, like operating system installs. So you're sure. right on the BIOS side. But it turns out that actual BIOS-level malware is incredibly rare, but you see a lot more malware in firmware instead. Okay, so, yeah. so
4: I, I think I get it now. So WPBT actually is looking at all of those different firmwares, not just your BIOS firmware.
1: I'm going to believe so. I believe it's actually checking to make sure that all that software is digitally signed by the proper vendors. Jeff, is is that correct? I don't think it's just BIOS. I
2: I think um, as we move to UEFI, the the attack surface got more complicated as things tend to do over time. Uh, You're right in BIOS protecting like BIOS access. But the problem is, UEFI is also a file system. Of essentially executables. I mean, literally yep. Windows PE executables. Sure. And it's writable once you're admin inside of Windows. And sure, there are signatures to protect, but it turns out uh, bypassing signature protection uh, varies greatly Trivial. in difficulty based on the environment. <laughs> like uh, kernel drivers for Windows, for example, effectively can't be revoked uh, from a signature perspective. So you see malicious reuse of existing vulnerable drivers used by attackers all the time. I believe this WPBT is taking advantage of a a continuation of that style of attack.
1: Well, and the the thing that I find hilarious about this, if you're looking at Intel, a trusted platform module, you talk about UEFI and all of this, you, you almost have this theme where it's like, holy crap, organizations are getting compromised constantly through spear phishing attacks. And Microsoft's like, well, here's UEFI. Okay, that's odd. Um, still, 95% of the attacks are spear phishing and password sprays and all these things. And Intel's like, here's trusted platform module. <laughs> okay, I... um, here we have this, here's trusted platform module too. It's like, okay, you get a bunch of really, really, really smart, techie, geeky, like Silicon people who spend a lot of time at places like Usenix. And then they look at the computer security problems like, you know what this needs? This needs some crypto. Crap! That didn't work. You know what this <laughs> needs is some crypto that's baked into the silicon. That's going to fix the problem. And it's like, no, your core issue is yeah. some somebody's going to click on a link from a stranger.
0: I, I do think one last thing about this is that this whole rootkit idea and the, at the BIOS level and all this other stuff. These are pretty advanced, and this is like. 10 stages down the line like and a lot of times when i'm doing a red team or even thinking we don't even go this far because no. we, first we didn't need to and second of all i don't want to have to explain to the customer how to remove this thing right because it could be a whole <laughs> process and like it's just it's just like it's it could be you know and they're like you still have access we've been trying to get rid of it for three months we're like you just need to do this they're like we had to wipe the whole th- we burnt the computer you know well. um but still though it's just this attack like you said John a ton of other issues right before you get to this right so maybe let's th- let's think about those first even though this is important and we should talk about it but you know this isn't what i would lose sleep over let's just put it that way so right
1: if you want a frame of reference like if you're going to start chasing the turtles all the way down i want you to know that outside of sandia uh, national laboratory if you're in albuquerque you can actually see this line where there's this big barbed wire fence that's going around a secure area if you get in a car or a Jeep and you ride out in the middle of that area, which, by the way, you, you can't unless you have somebody escorting you and you have a badge. They have like a tent and they have buildings. And in these tents and in these buildings, they have a whole bunch of decommissioned hardware that at some point they believe has been compromised or it's been retired or whatever reasons. They aren't using these computers anymore. For the United States government, for highly classified computer systems, if they believe that that system has been compromised, the only solution, the only solution that's available to them is to completely decommission the entire platform. So there's literally millions of dollars of computing equipment that's just sitting out in the desert, collecting sand, because there's nothing in that platform that they trust. Because they know once it gets compromised, If you actually have a situation where a nation-state attacker got on that platform, it is now officially evil turtles all the way down. So (laughs) maybe that'll help you sleep better at night.
2: (laughs) My wife and I are watching uh, the Alien series and nuke it from orbit. It's the only way to be sure. Uh, Really, (laughs) really, For for top-tier secrets, sure. (laughs) D-band probably works fine, but in all honesty, top-tier secrets: they D-band and do the trim control, and then physically grind the hard drive if it's spinning disk, and then keep the ground-up remains, <laughs> possibly melting them. Put it on There's no available.
1: I like yeah, that. That's... I like that way you D-band it first and then grind it. <laughs> <laughs> they literally store <laughs> yeah,
2: <my friend. laughs>
0: they store those hard drives in the same place they store the spent fuel rods literally we can't get rid of it. this is that serious like no one can even see the shards
3: <laughs> quick quick question before we move off of this topic do you think this might be associated with like maybe some of the uh hyper convergence stuff that's going on like i know esx had some issues earlier in the year with hello kitty could this be associated with maybe some stuff going on with like vSphere? To try to get at the at the hyper convergence level, to then do things on boxes or maybe not. Well, then
1: you're you're kind of touching on like you're you're kind of like you're kind of like touching on like um, like Spectre, Meltdown, all those types yeah. of attacks. You're yeah. going yeah. all
0: Matrix on us.
1: So will so, okay. no, <laughs> digress. Is, like I said, there's absolutely mathy geeky people that are running huge data centers, and they do care about this, like at a very very deep level. Um, And I think that there's an X, I think that there's an XKCD comic out there that they talk about, you know, cloud computing and everything. And then they basically boil it down to one simple thing that, you know, cloud computing is nice because you know, that there's engineers from Microsoft and Amazon that are basically losing sleep over these types of issues. Um, So leave it for the realm of the dragons, I suppose.
0: Oh my gosh. So much fun.
1: All right. With that, let, let's take it out. That's a great point to end it because I know there's new people listening to this and they're like, are we all, are we all screwed? Yes. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and with that, we'll see you next week, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys.